Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is our program of In the Study of the Book of Revelation. Our program is entitled Revealing the Book of Revelation. We're in the middle of that right now, and in fact, we are at chapter 12. Now, in the last episode, I kind of tried to explain at the end <clears throat> the way we approach this book, that the way the prophecy is given to us I've always called this a prophetic symphony. Lots of different things, instruments, but they play together and they play at alternating things. And it's not that the violins play by themselves first and then the trumpets play by themselves and and then the woodwinds play by themselves and the choir sings by itself. No, you would understand they're all going to be playing together, the same symphony of music. And that's what we have here, is that this prophecy goes through and shows you a layer of the Great Tribulation telling you about the seven seals, ultimately leading to the day of the Lord. Then it goes through and gives you a set of trumpets. And it's, again, talking about the same time period, and it gets you the seventh trumpet, the day of the Lord. We're soon going to see the same thing with the plagues and do that. And these other elements that we have in the book, such as the explanation of the 144,000 or the tribulation saints in chapter 7, explaining about, uh, for example, uh, the two witnesses and when they're operating and the, and the time prophecies, it's giving you layers of things that are happening all at the same time in this three-and-a-half-year period we call the Great Tribulation. Now, chapter 12 is doing that again. It's, it's presenting a symbolic representation of the whole thing and how we got here. And in the last episode, I shared with you about this astro, astrological presentation. The story is told in the heavens. The book of Revelation, the whole story is told in the book uh, in the heavens. In fact, the scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, astrology... And what has been done by the Babylonians is they changed all the stories. I would love to go back and hear the ancients be able to teach about all the different constellations that are in the heavens and see how it reveals the story of what's been going on with what God is doing with mankind. Because the scripture says that that's what's actually up there. That is what's being explained. This book, chapter 12 
uses one of those very powerful ones, what we call Virgo, the virgin, Hydra, uh, and, and there are certain key stars in there. And they tell the story of a virgin giving birth to a son and about how the dragon tries to kill the son, but he escapes. And that's what we see here in these first verses of chapter 12. It's, and then it talks about the woman who gave birth fleeing into the wilderness and being protected during the Great Tribulation. That's another layer of explaining what the whole purpose of the Great Tribulation is. So the woman who gave birth to the son can escape, and God preserves her. And that, of course, would be referring to people like you and me, believers that are going to be preserved in that. So we went through uh, chapter 12 and through verse 6 looking at the time prophecy where it specifically says uh, 1,260 days they'll be preserved. That is a number that is consistent with the two witnesses. And in fact, at the same time the two witnesses operate, the, those that are in Judea have fled and are kept safe during that time. And I shared with you before, there's a particular region of Israel that's famous for this that will be a product of that. It will be part of the fulfillment of the scapegoat that comes from Yom Kippur. All of this is integrated. All of it fits together. Now, I know for a lot of you going through this study, there's just a tremendous number of pieces to kind of get a handle on. Well, it's the same confusion if you are sitting in the middle of an orchestra with the instruments and the symphony is being played. If you're in the middle of it looking around at what different players are doing and so forth, it would look confusing. It would look like, what are they doing? And, 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 for example, if you get some flutist who just goes up and in the middle of the symphony goes up and goes toot toot and then puts their instrument down, you go, what was the point of that? Um, and in the same way, we have a lot of prophecies coming together that shows the layers. And this is what I've been trying to say before about this book. You don't look at this in a telescopic manner. You don't look at this in a linear way. What you've got to do is absorb it all and let a 3D prophetic picture take shape. It's multiple layers of the same thing. And that once you get, in this, get the sense of that and how they link, a whole other picture begins to emerge. There's a whole other way to look at all these prophecies, in particular, the Great Tribulation. Why in the world would God be telling us all this? Because he says to the last generation, this is what is going to be shortly taking place, you need to know this. This is part of the reason you're going to be delivered, is that you'll understand what is happening. And if you understand what is happening, you can endure many more things if you don't, as opposed to someone who doesn't understand what is happening. If, if you don't have hope and know what's going to be the end result, it's very hard to hang on. Um, if you're in a dark pit, let me use this example. If you're in a dark pit, and you have no idea what your future is, and you're all by yourself and you're isolated, and you're stuck down there for a while, that would all be very, very hard. That would be a very difficult situation. But if, oh, by the way, you, the other way is that you went into the pit with the knowledge that you're only going to be in the pit for seven days, and then you'll emerge and you'll be fine. Now, the seven days in your pit, they're not fun, but at least I have the hope and a promise 
I'll be out of here as compared to the first case where he has no hope and no chance. So why did the Lord give us this material? So that we'll all have hope and we'll understand what's going on and we'll know what the end result is. So that's the reason why it's important to us to have some measure of understanding on these things. He desires us to know this for our good. All right, so let's pick up our study again at chapter 12, and it continues on at verse 7. And it says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels, uh, waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of, his te- of their testimony. And they did not love their life even unto death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Now... Let's. What in the world's going on? This is another layer of the Great Tribulation. At the start of the Great Tribulation, as I shared with you, the Messiah is going to rise up from the seat where he's been seated at the right hand of the Father. While he's been seated there, the devil's been on the other side accusing the brethren, and he's been standing there as an advocate for us, you know, for God to be merciful to us. But when he rises up, there's going to be a war in heaven. Michael, the archangel, who guards and protects Israel down here on the earth, is going to be summoned back up to heaven to lead the armies of heaven to throw the devil and his angels out of heaven. There's a war in heaven. And he casts out the devil and casts out his angels down to the earth where they're stuck. They can't be before heaven. And at that moment, in the great tribulation, there's no more devil to accuse the saints before the Lord. Because it now says the Messiah is now in charge of the kingdom from the heavenly side. There's no more competition in heaven. What is to result is at the end of the great tribulation is the Messiah comes and then there will be no more conflict on the earth either that it will be the defeat of the devil. When the devil falls with his angels to the earth at the start of the Great Tribulation, he suddenly realizes what's going on. He can look at the scripture too. It says the Anamasai will only have the power for 42 months, and his days are short. So he gets those 42 months, and then that's it. He's going to be judged. So he's very upset. He's very angry. He's lost. Um, Let me, if you'll permit me, with just a touch of being humorous, it's like being a Democrat and you suddenly discover that Trump has won the presidency. I mean, it's just outrageous to them. It just, they can't, they can't tolerate. The devil is going to feel even worse than the Democrats feel at the moment when he gets cast out of heaven. Uh, I know that's hard to imagine, but he will. Um, permit me just that one piece of humor there. 
it's a, such a good illustration. Um, now, I want you to take note of this. It was Michael that came up, okay? I want to take you to another passage in Second Thessalonians where Paul is telling the Thessalonians about um, the Great Tribulation. He's talking about the, the, uh, the things that will be happening at the end of the age. And I want to read to you um, where he addresses, don't let anybody tell you that the Great Trib or the end of the age has already come. Uh, it hasn't come yet, and here's some reasons why. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the, of the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect the day of the Lord has come. He says, this stuff is future stuff. It hasn't happened. It hasn't happened in his day. And he says, these are future things to have happen. He says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless, it says, the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who poses and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple and displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs of false wonders, with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. There's a couple of things that Paul says there. He's basically teaching what I've just been telling you. He's saying, hey, guys, I want to make sure you understand. We're not at the end of the age until we come to all those prophecies that lead us and tell us about the day of the Lord. And, oh, by the way, there's going to be a great tribulation. And I'm telling you right now, there will be a great falling away of people when that happens. The people will turn away from God when it takes place. And, oh, by the way, the anti-Messiah is going to rise to power. Why will he rise to power? Because the devil has been kicked out of heaven. And when he's kicked out of heaven, he's going to be trying to do his thing here. And the devil then is going to try to oppress the saints through the anti-Messiah and the auspices of all that. And we'll get into the detail of this in the very next chapter. And then he says this. He says, and remember, the restrainer will be taken out of the way. You know who he's talking about there? He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Michael. Michael is the one who has the, the title, the restrainer of evil. He's the one who stands for Israel today, right now, as we speak, and he's restraining evil from it. Every nation has a prince um, angel over them. 
There's an angel over the Persians. There's an angel over um, the United States. There's an angel that's over Israel. Every nation has one. God grants one to him. And the one that is over Israel is Michael. And Michael is there for the express purpose to restrain evil and keep evil away from Israel. But if all of a sudden he is called up into heaven to have war in heaven to kick the devil out, he is absent now from that position of restraining evil. If the devil is now cast down to the earth, guess what the devil gets to do then? There's no more restraint. The devil gets to make war on the saints. And that's the reason for us that it's going to be very difficult. That's the reason why we have to escape. We'll have to survive. We'll have to endure. Is because one of the natural protections that God had instituted in place has been pulled out so that we can get the thing in heaven resolved so then he can come here and get this thing resolved. The issue in heaven has got to be resolved first. The issue with down here is the house of God has to be resolved first. Then we deal with the rest. And this scripture that we just read here in chapter 12 is telling us about the dynamic of this. This is what the great tribulation is all about. The devil has been kicked out of heaven. Now, for those in heaven, it says rejoice. But you on the earth, whoa, this is not going to be good. And we all know the great tribulation is not going to be good. We know there's these judgments of God. Now, add another layer. It's going to be tough on us, too, because the devil wants to kill us. He wants to do as much harm as he possibly can to the bride. And so he's going to be given a certain period of time to try to pursue us. And that's the reason why there's a need for Israel, the woman who gave birth to the son, why she has to go into protection and be nourished for 1260 days and protected. And the saints, us, scattered in the nations, we need to have protection. You remember me telling you about the 144,000? They'll have the seal of God, and their primary function is to protect tribulation saints. They've been given authority to deal with spiritual things like devils and the devil. And it clearly says that the devil doesn't have power of those that have the name of God in their forehead. So there, that's called, they, they comfort us, we come into the fortress, we take refuge in the name of the Lord, and that's how we're protected. Now, if you're a saint here during this time frame, missed the rapture, you don't believe in the 144,000, you can't understand what's going on, guess what? You're subject to the devil. You're like defenseless for what he's able to do. And it says, it clearly says he will definitely hate you and try to do harm to you so let me look at um, uh, let me read again from verse 13 chapter 12 when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child he persecuted the woman he's going to go after all the saints some are going to escape and this is verse 14 I want you to really take note of this and the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness for her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. The wings of the great eagle. Where have I heard that expression before? Oh, my. That's exactly the way the psalmist explained the exodus out of Egypt. 
that God mounted up Israel on the wings of an eagle and took them out of Egypt. And so he's talking about doing that kind of deliverance again. As you've heard from me before, let me repeat it again. There's going to be a great, uh, uh, even greater exodus taking place during this time. God's people are going to be escaping from the cities, escaping from, they're going to go into the wilderness of the peoples, the wilderness of the nations. God will be preserving them and keeping them from the enemy. Because if you're in the cities and you're with other people, with warfare going on, with disease going on, famine going on, and the devil has been let loose on the world, this is a really bad scenario for people. And one in which that a believer would have great difficulty surviving from. So the whole layer of the Great Tribulation, what's going on, is being explained to us again. Verse 15, as I shared with you before, the group in uh, Judea, that flees, they flee the way of the of the uh, Yom Kippur scapegoat. It says this, and the serpent poured out water uh, like a river out of the mouth after the woman, so that she might cause her to be swept away with the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drunk up the river which the dragon poured out uh, of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua. Remember I told you there's a group of believers in Judea when the abomination of desolation is set up. Yeshua said when you see that happen, those in Judea flee immediately. It will be in the winter. It will be at the start of the Great Tribulation. They flee into the wilderness, and the devil's going to cause a lot of rains to come and flood, and he's going to try to kill them as they escape. Only God's going to deliver him with what I call the miracle of the Red Sea in reverse. He's going to open the earth, swallow the flood that was coming after them. And we know the terrain where they're going to be fleeing. And, uh, and I've, in fact, I have been to this place. And it's well known, very famous, for being a dry area in the Judean wilderness in which that when there are rains up in the mountains of Israel... Uh, Jerusalem and so forth, the waters funnel down through there on their way to the Dead Sea. And you get these incredible flash floods. And they kill people. You know, hikers and so forth have lost their lives uh, from these things. And so we have this being played out at that moment. But I want you to take note. Once she flees, then he turns his attention on the rest of her offspring. In Matthew 24, when Yeshua is talking about the Great Tribulation getting started, the abomination of desolation, he's talking to the believers that will be in Judea that day, in and around Jerusalem. He's not talking about all believers. He's talking about they have to specifically escape that day. When does the rest of us escape? Passover. Passover is when we escape, we walk away, there's nobody fleeing us. There's no flood after us. We, we then enter into the camps of the righteous uh, in, in the wilderness of the peoples, separate from the cities and other people. And that's how we're preserved. And we're witnesses to what God has done with them already. We will have already seen a, an element of his deliverance uh, take place there in the land of Israel. Isn't this an incredible story? 
I mean, isn't it? I mean, Stephen King has never come close to anything like this. I mean, this is just fascinating how intense this thing is. Um, so verse 17, I want you to also take note, the rest of her offspring. Who are the rest of the offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Yeshua? Let's see, that would be a messianic believer who stands up for the commandments of God, who stands up and gives testimony, positive testimony about the Torah. If I go and I poll the average Christian today, I will hear them say, yes, I believe in Jesus. When you ask them, well, what about the Torah? What about the laws? What about the commandments of God? Oh, no, we don't do that. So this verse is not about those people. This verse is about the people who speak in a positive way about the Torah and the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua. Both are required. And I find it utterly fascinating that the scripture is that direct and that specific. It's not talking about just Christians, the average Christian that we have today. All right. Now, I've been mentioning to you that there's some other key characters that are involved in the Great Tribulation. Specifically, when the devil is cast out of heaven, he gets to have some say over what's going to happen on the earth. And he's got a plan. And by the way, his plan is revealed to us. In the same way that we have God the Father, the devil is going to position himself like he's equivalent to God our Father. He's then going to raise up a man who will be the anti-Messiah, who will be the equivalent of our Messiah. He's going to raise up a false prophet, a religious leader, who will be the equivalent of the Holy Spirit. He's an imitator. So he's going to imitate this structure to try to influence the world, to turn the world against God and to him. So in chapter 13, we're getting ready to be introduced to both of these characters and some of the things about them. Chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, he said, And and he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it were slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation that was given to him. And all those who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So anytime you see that phrase, if anyone has an ear, there's some absolutely very profound things that people need to pay attention to.
Essentially, this is what's going to happen. The Great Tribulation begins, and after the two witnesses emerge, and after we have escaped, the Antichrist is going to come to power. I, how do I know that he comes to power after those initial events? Because it says he's only granted 42 months. Now, I know the Antichrist is going to be judged at a future day of the Lord, a future day of atonement after the three and a half years have been completed. If I count from that, which is 15 uh, tish, or excuse me, 10 Tishri, that's, that's the day of atonement, and that's a month that he's been in, then I count 41 months before that on the Hebrew calendar, and that means that he will emerge oh, a couple of months after the abomination of desolation. It won't be exactly the same time. It will stagger and fall. He'll come to power essentially after the, the events in Jer Jerusalem have taken place, after we've already fled, after we've already gone into the camps of the righteous. He's going to emerge in the world at that point. And when he does, and by the way, if I take you back to the first seal, that's when we see him beginning to emerge. That's the first seal. That's when the seals will get broke. It's after we've left, and it'll be in the early part of the Great Tribulation. So he rises to power, and there's some descriptors that are given to us so that we can recognize him and immediately know who they are. And so it's all of these incredible illustrations. Um, you know, it talks about um, having ten horns, seven heads, uh, blasphemous names. Uh, he has. Uh, he's like a leopard. His feet are like that of a bear. His mouth like of a lion. And the dragon is there. Gives him his power, throne, and great authority. And and it says all of these symbols that explain him. For years, most Bible scholars and eschatology people who study the end times, they look at this and they consider this to be highly symbolic. Highly symbolic. But you know what? I have news for you. Some of these same symbols have been used in the Bible earlier. And they've meant very specific things. The vision that Daniel got about specifically the world empires that would be dealing with Israel included something like a goat. And included ten toes. And, uh, and, and we knew that to be the Roman Empire you know, that came, and the Roman Empire is the one that smashed Israel and sent it into the nations. All of those prophecies have come true. He, he predicted the Greeks, he predicted the Persians, he predicted the Romans. And all of those things came true using those symbols, and it was very easy. Matter of fact, we go back on it and we go, wow, that's an extremely literal prophecy. I mean, anybody can figure this out. This is a literal prophecy, too. There these symbols are present in the world. And they are associated with very specific things. In fact, the description that I'm just going to give to you very quickly of a creature that has the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, and the mouth of a lion, it exists in this world and has existed for the last 500 years, and it's called the heraldic beast. It's the symbol for the king's of Great Britain. And right now, 
that it's called the Leopards of England or the Lions of England. And let me just tell you, I'm not saying that he is. I'm saying that he fits a lot of prophecies. Prince Charles of Wales right now fits all of these different prophecies. He was born at the same time Israel became a nation in the same year. He has been operating on a world scale, uh, doing a whole variety of things, and he has some very interesting global ideas of what he'd like to do in the world. Oh, by the way, he's also made predictions the world is going to be coming to an end in this generation. Um, I can go into a lot more detail about it. In fact, if you really want to know some great detail on this, there's an article I've written called The Prince Who Is to Come. And it goes through a lot of this detail. But in this prophecy, it's identifying for you in advance who this beast is. And the reason why it's identifying for you is so you'll, be, you'll not be caught unawares if you have this person do it. By the way, let me just show you. The, the dragon gave him his power, thrown into great authority. <laughs> You're going to love this. Prince Charles, when he was at Canavern Castle in 1969, and he received the title of Prince of Wales to be the um, heir apparent to the throne for Queen Elizabeth. He sat in a throne chair with a red dragon. They were in Wales, and the Prince of Wales, they posted this uh, investor in Wales, and they had banners of red dragons. And literally, literally, when Queen Elizabeth put the crown on its head, she said this Red dragon has given you your great power, throne, and authority. She literally said the words that are right here in the prophecy. Now, as to whether or not he is the Antichrist or not, we will not know until these days come and he rises to power. If he rises to power, we'll be able to say, hey, there he is. <clears throat> Up until that point... It's just another one of these prophecies where we see things lining up, but we don't know for sure yet, And but we're watching closely. We have to watch him very closely. Later on in chapter 17, we're going to see an interesting riddle that is born out of this phrase, <clears throat> which says, Ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems. In chapter 17, there's going to be a riddle, and that, and we'll explain how that represents the beast, the Antichrist. <coughs> Pardon me. The, um, and I'll give you a little more explanation when we get to chapter 17, but we'll explain that further. So we have an anti-Messiah that's going to come to power. He's going to have this great authority to unify the world. He will not be able to unify all of the world. There will be a lot of conflict. But he will rise to power, and there will be conflict associated. And I can assure you, he will hate the saints, and he'll be doing things that will be to oppress them. How does the anti-Messiah and how does the world and the devil oppress the saints? They make new laws, and they make laws to make you an outlaw. Everything you do, they'll make it illegal. They'll make you illegal. They'll devalue you. They'll make it difficult for you to live or do anything. Your freedom will be taken from you. That's how they will oppress you. And that's how the trouble 
will come upon um, all of the saints at that time. Obviously, at that time, it would be so much better if you were in the camp of the righteous and could be congregated with other believers, and by the way, and be one of those camps where the 144,000 are at. That would be the better way to go, and because that's the way God has described the deliverance that will be given to the saints at the time. All right, and it says here in verse 8, chapter 13, verse 8, it says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name is not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has near, let him hear. I know this is very hard to believe, but um, the world will reject Yeshua of Nazareth as the Messiah, And they will consider this guy to be the Messiah. What prophecies have come forth other than the very negative prophecies? No, he's going to be selling to the people the things that people want to hear. Things that people want. And in the same way we've seen throughout the history of the world, every once in a while there's leaders that rise up and says, I'm going to... I'm going to do great things for you people. In fact, I'm going to make everything free to you. And as a result, people fall for it. Well, that so-called freedom is like free cheese sitting in a mousetrap. Once you start biting on the cheese, all of a sudden the trap goes off and you are really stuck. And you are in trouble. Uh, I always say this. If you make everything free, all you have is a free-for-all. Just chaos, you know, emerges. And that's what the leadership uh, of the anti-Messiah is going to be. It's going to be a free-for-all. And many people are going to be harmed. And if you're caught up in that world and what's going on, it, I guarantee you, it will be religious. It will be, they will adore him. They'll swear he's like God. And that's the blasphemy that takes place. He's blaspheming God, claiming that he's God. All right. Verse 10, if anyone is destined to captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance and faith of the saints. Let me summarize from the, the, the whole Bible standpoint. There's really three destinies for the saints in the Great Tribulation. There's a destiny called captivity. There's a destiny called take up the sword. And then there's another destiny, which is to... Um, escape, survive, and endure to the end. Now, I would like to believe that most of you would choose this one, that you would choose the Lord's deliverance. But to do that, you have to be keeping the commandments of the Lord. I mean the law of Moses. You have to be keeping the feasts of the Lord. You have to see and understand these prophecies, including what the words of all the prophets of Israel said about it, so that you can get the whole total picture, so you can see that we are moving toward that final year with the final Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, that we're all leading to that. And you have to know what those things mean, and they have to be your hope, and they have to be you know, the process you see going on. The average believer that's running around in the world today that proclaims Jesus has no concept of those things. They might as well be blind for what that destiny of escaping and surviving and enduring is all about. So what are their other choices? One is captivity. 
And as I shared with you in one of the letters to the seven churches, it talks about saints going into captivity and asking them and telling them to be faithful for 10 days. Don't give up the faith. Keep it for 10 days. By the way, you're not going to starve to death. They're going to kill you. It'll be a holocaust. But this time, instead of everybody hanging around in barracks for years, starving to death, um, they're going to process you out in 10 days. And a lot of people are going to be taken captive because they just don't get it. They don't understand. They'll be in the wrong place. And the Lord is saying that's one of the destinies of the saints. You're still a saint. You're still going to be in the kingdom, but you'll be caught in that. That's what you're going to be doing. The other one is taking up the sword. There are going to be a lot of brethren who are going to say, let's take up arms and defend ourselves from what is going on. Will they have the right to do that? Absolutely. You inherently have the right to self-defense. And it may be that some of those that will do that will help deliver some others. Maybe there are others that will benefit from that. Because the scripture says that I will give other people's lives for your life. And he's talking to the saints that will escape. Uh, I know a lot of wonderful brethren, um, conservative brethren, that live in this country, that love the Lord. And their stated choice, they have said to me, learning of these prophecies, learning of what it is, they have said, oh, I want to be one of the guys that takes up the sword. Uh, Yeah, but don't you know that when you take up the sword, you'll die by it? Don't you know that when you get into armed conflict like that, they'll they'll overwhelm you? Yeah, they know that. But they still want to do it that way. Well, I guess that's the reason why there's a destiny for them. So the scripture is recounting now as an overview of the tribulation saints, all the saints of the great tribulation. There are some saints, they are going to go into captivity and they're going to die. Some of them are going to defend themselves, band together. I believe that I'm talking to people that primarily will be in the third category so that you'll understand about what the escape plan is and how we'll endure and survive all of those things. But this is what it says. This is the perseverance and faith of the saints. This is how they're going to, quote, hang in there and how it will proceed. All right, now we're going to shift gears, and we have just the right amount of time for this in this lesson. Chapter 13, verse 11, we're going to introduce another character to you. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth, those who dwell in it, to worship the first beast, whose fatal womb was healed. Let me cover something here very quickly. Um, one of the things that will happen when the Antichrist comes to power, people will recognize that he fits the prophecies, and there will actually be people in the world who will say, that's the Antichrist, that's the, the, that's the devil. And they actually will go and assassinate him. I think they'll shoot him in the head they'll, to, to kill him. But here's the thing that really empowers him is he is raised up from the dead. So he'll have a false testimony, like Yeshua, being raised from the dead. And the guy that's instrumental in that process is going to be this guy. This guy will assist 
in the raising of him to dead, and that's the reason why he's viewed as a very powerful spiritual figure, whereas the Antipasai is viewed as a very powerful figure that has power over death. Do you see the combination between the Son of God having power over death, being raised, and the work of the Holy Spirit and how it works? Do you see them imitating those things? And it will be a very powerful influence on the world. The world will get sucked into this thing. Unbelievers will fall for it. All right? Verse 13, and he, he the, the, the false prophet, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven to the earth in the presence of men. What is that? That's the miracle of Elijah. Elijah, in battling with the prophets of Baal, brought fire down from heaven and consumed. He's going to do the same sign that Elijah did. So he's going to present himself as a very powerful prophet, as a very powerful spiritual force, and to fool the world. Verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which will be given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and it has come to life. Now this gets really interesting because it just gave us a clue as to how quickly these things are going to be happening and at what time they're going to be happening. These are the things that are going to be happening in that first 30 days. The altar gets shut down. 30 days later, an image is set up. You've got to have all these things happen in that 30-day period. You've got to have the image made of the beast and set up for it so that it can do its miracle. That's the second phase of the abomination of desolation. So what we're reading here is the false prophet's going to do his thing to promote the beast and the Antichrist. But he doesn't get his power until a little bit later on. But he'll be promoted and sold to the world by the false prophet during that time. It's a very interesting scenario how this is all going to work. How all the pieces fall into place. The, um, uh, by the way, I, I guess I should mention this. There already is a statue that's been made of Prince Charles. It's a statue of him standing, and he's got wings affixed to him like he's an angel. And he's dressed in a loincloth. And he's standing on a globe that has a whole bunch of skulls and crossbones and, and the bones of people. And there's a label put on it. It says, Prince Charles uh, of Wales, Savior of the World. So what would it take for that image to be brought over? And set up, you know, 30 days after the altar gets shut down. <laughs> That's a simple logistics problem. Just ship it over there. Nobody has to go and make a statue. Nobody has to carve anything or fire something. It already exists. And by the way, if I was going to make an image for the Antichrist and I was going to be trying to fulfill these prophecies, I can't think of a better statue than the one that exists right now of him. And the message that it conveys, because it's the very message that the false prophet will be selling the world. This is the Savior of the world. Worship him and fall down and follow the beast. It goes on to say that, um, that he's also going to cause this image to do a miracle. 
who will have the image to actually speak. Um, Verse 15, And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, and that the image of the beast might even speak, and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So if you take the position, well, I'm not going to worship the image of the beast, he has the power to have you slain. He causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, this is probably one of one prophecy from the book of Revelation that stands out for the whole rest of the book. In fact, if you were to go around taking a poll of just about everybody in the world and say, what do you know about the book of Revelation? And you mentioned, hey, have you ever heard of the mark of the beast, the 666 thing that's here? Yeah, everybody's heard that. And we live in a world of very high technology. And in fact, one of the things that is emerging in our world is the ability to have what's called implant technology. They can insert into you, pierce into your skin, insert a device in your skin that then is able to communicate electronically various things. In some cases, it gives, holds all your medical records, has your identification of who you are. They've even got it so it speaks to your bank so you can buy and sell, like your Apple Watch thing. You know, they just do it on the phone. Credit cards, that little chip in there. But, but they're talking about, it's very clear the technology is moving to something like this in our days. And that's one of the prerequisites before this prophecy can take shape. And it says here that the false prophet, I want you to take note of this, not the beast, it's the false prophet that promotes this. Now, why would that be so? Why would it be the false prophet who promotes this tech, the use of this technology to be able to buy or sell instead of the beast? It's because the world is already moving that direction to institute this kind of technology. But everybody in the world has heard the prophecy, oh, if you take the mark of the beast where you're doomed, you know, you can't go to heaven, and so forth. What would it take to overcome that objection? All I have to do is be a central religious figure, an expert on the Bible, if you will, and I'm able to do all kinds of miracles, and do show signs and wonders. And I announce to you, oh, that thing over there, that's not the mark of the beast. That is not what the prophecy is talking about. It's talking about something else. You can take that. In fact, I encourage you to take that. That's not, you don't have to worry about that at all. That's what kind of sales job will be taken to get the world to take this thing. It'll have to be a religious figure saying, defying what this scripture says. And it can't be just the beast himself because he's the one who would be promoted. They say, oh, he's promoting him because he's the bad guy and, you know, this is a bad thing. But if the false prophet is promoting it, that's a different person whom they think is a good person. And that would be the way it gets sold. Now, I just told you how they're going to sell it. Obviously, you, upon seeing this, need to avoid that. And, in fact, that's what the scripture, the next scripture says, verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, 
for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. He is trying to let you know in advance, if you see a character begin to emerge on your horizon, and this seems to be the time of the end, and we see all these prophecies coming together, if you see a person begin to emerge that could be this guy walking around with this symbol, this beast symbol, and he's in cahoots with a, a world religious leader, and they're promoting this kind of stuff, and, and we can see the trends that completely are consistent with this. It says, you should be wise about all of this, and to help you to be wise on it, I'm going to give you a clue to identify who he is. In advance of him being revealed to the world. Now, do you remember I told you they're going to promote this uh, thing, they're going to promote the image before the Antichrist comes to power. He comes to power a little bit later. So in that stage, before he's revealed to the world, the Lord has given us a clue that will help us to understand who it might be and who we need to avoid and to not do what they talk about. Well, what is this 666 business? What is the number of a name? What does that mean? Uh, few people know this, but in our country, uh, the numerals we have are not English numerals. Eng English doesn't have any numerals. We use, in fact, Arabic numerals. Sometimes we use Roman numerals. And in school, you learned about Arabic and Roman numerals, and all mathematics are based on Arabic numerals that we know about. This is something great that the Arabs came up with. They came up with these numbers symbols, and that's how we got them. And so we give credit to them being Arabic numerals. By the way, I just saw an, a survey that was done in this country, uh, and they were asking the average American citizens, do you agree that we should be using Arabic numerals? Do you know that 57% said no? You know, they thought it was a Muslim thing. They don't even understand the numerals we have in English, our Arabic numerals. So English doesn't have its own numerals. We use another set from another place. Well, by the way, Hebrew doesn't have numerals either. Nor does Greek. There are no Greek numerals. There are no Hebrew numerals. We use numeral sets that come from others. What do the Hebrews do in the absence of... Uh, of uh, using Arabic numerals or Roman numerals, what, what, how did they convey something in numerals? How did the Bible, for example, written in Hebrew, describe the different numbers and so forth? Well, it has to do with a system called gematria. And gematria is where you take um, the letters in the alphabet and their order in the alphabet and they're assigned numerical values. So, for example, the first letter in the Hebrew, Aleph, is given the value of 1. Second letter, bet, is given the value of two, gimel, three, dalit, four, and so forth. Well, it gets up to the ten point, and yod becomes ten, and the very next letter, instead of becoming eleven, it becomes twenty. The next letter becomes thirty. 
the next letter becomes 40. It goes up to 100. The next letter after that is 200, 300, 400. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and the numerical values are from 1 up to 22 different numerical values. And they use the combination of letters of those values to show a number. And they give you a number that is corresponds to those letters. And you know to calculate up to as to what the number is equivalent to. Now, in ancient times, uh, the numbering of a name was every name that's written would have a numerical count. Every word has a numerical count uh, to it. So they're saying his name by the Gematria method will equal 666. Now, this used to be the ancient way things are done. In fact, there's a very famous archaeological find that was in Greece where the Greeks do the same thing with their alphabet in which it was carved in there, I love the girl whose name equals 545. It was a kind of a secret way of giving her name in a coded sort of way. Well, that's what we have. We have a name that's in a very coded way. And the Hebrews and Hebrew gematria is the answer to how you interpret this. Oh, by the way, on the off chance, how does Prince Charles of Wales stack up against this? Well, as a matter of fact, uh, in English, if you take the same system and apply it to English, uh, Prince Charles of Wales equals 666. If you translate his name into Hebrew, and they do for Hebrew newspapers and so forth, his Hebrew spelled name, Prince Charles of Wales, it too calculates to 666. An amazing astronomical odds uh, coincidence. Again, another reason to pay attention. So what did the prophecy say to us? Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of his name. It's the, it's the number of a man. And that's part of the reason why I'm not saying he is the Antichrist. I'm saying we better pay attention to him. We better watch what he does. Um, he is my age, doing quite well, and has still has designs on global power. It's just a fact. So we'll have to see how things unfold. Obviously, the older he gets, the potentially the quicker we are getting to the end of the age. So that's another factor in that indicates we might be the last generation if you see the evidence of the man that fits these prophecies running around with you on the world. We need to pay attention, obviously. All right, that should be enough for this lesson for you all. We look forward to chapter 14 in our next session. Shalom to all of you. Thank you.